Father, most of us have had uh, long days, and uh, even though we're just in the middle of the week, it's already been a long week. There's a lot to do in a short amount of time, seemingly, to do it. We're trying to make a living, trying to pay the bills. This is not the greatest economy we've ever seen, so it's even more of a challenge. But we are grateful in the midst of all of this that you give to your beloved, even in their sleep. It is vain to rise up early and, and to stay, stay up late to exhaust ourselves and forget about the fact that you are our provider. We're to work and we are to work hard, but you are the one that gives us the power to make wealth. We are utterly and completely and totally dependent on you. All that we have, you have given to us. And we want to make sure that we have grateful hearts. We want to make sure that whatever our circumstances, whatever our condition as we walk in here tonight, that we are not like uh, the people of Israel in the Old Testament who perpetually and continually murmured and complained over their condition. We have much to be grateful for. We have much to be thankful for. And even though we are under pressure, even though we have concerns, even though there are great uncertainties that are around us, you tell us to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Jesus. And in, and, and in the everyday pressure and running around and trying to put things together and working with people and dealing with setbacks and trying to bring it in and close these things, we can forget the truth sometimes. We're not in this by ourselves. We might be in a tight place, but underneath are the everlasting arms. You hold us up, you sustain us, you hold our lives together. We acknowledge you tonight. We ask that you would calm our hearts. We ask that you would refresh our spirits. For those who are down and discouraged, may you put courage back in. May you remind us of what is true. May you remind us tonight of what you have promised. You told those people in the Old Testament that were in the worst of predicaments. You, you, you said, I know the plans that I have for you. Not for calamity, but to give you a future and a hope. That's what you have in mind for us, Lord. Because we know you, we have great hope, no matter what we're dealing with. But it's all a matter of perspective. So tonight, refresh us. Refresh our hearts, refresh our perspectives. Give each guy in here what he needs. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one more time, we'll turn to the book of Boaz. And I'm careful to say it doesn't exist, but that has not stopped us from going there. Let's go to the book of Ruth. That's where you find Boaz. First time I ever heard Paul Harvey on the radio, I was seven years old. 
I, I, uh, I remember exactly where I was the first time I heard it. I was with my dad. We were uh, at an intersection in Bakersfield, California, right off of College Avenue, just one street up. You take that left. I remember being at that stop sign, and this guy was on the radio, and I asked my, he was so unique, and he had such a unique style. This was 1956. I asked my dad, I said, Dad, who's that man on the radio? And he said, that's Paul Harvey. <clears throat> Everybody knows Paul Harvey. And for years, Paul Harvey, when I moved to Dallas, he was on WBAP at noons. Uh, everybody knows Paul Harvey. They didn't even introduce him. He just came on. He was Paul Harvey. Your, your radio didn't even have to be on. <laughs> he would still come on. He, he was Paul Harvey. So he did the news every day, but then a lot of stations carried another deal that he did. And around here, it came on later in the afternoon. And it was called The Rest of the Story. And, and how he came up with this stuff, I'll never know. But every day, he would come on and he would start telling this story. As only Paul, as only Paul Harvey could tell a story. And, and, and you may have had 100 things on your plate, but when Paul Harvey started telling a story in about 90 seconds, he's hooked you. And, and you're completely taken in, and he's painting these circumstances, and he, he's telling you about this, and then he brings in this, and he folds this in, and then this comes in out of left field, and he's just got you hanging on every word, and then he pauses and he says, and in a minute, the rest of the story. There's not a guy in Dallas that changes the station. <laughs> You're going to listen to every commercial until Paul comes back and tells you the rest of the story. Well, here we are tonight, and after a number of weeks in the book of Boaz, a number of weeks in the book of Ruth, finally, tonight, the rest of the story. Our passage is in Ruth chapter 4, and if you've been with us, you, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating journey. It's a fascinating saga. It, it starts out with a family. By the way, this guy Boaz, who we're so taken with, and who we want to emulate, and who is a model for us of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've been with us, you know this by now. Boaz doesn't even show up in chapter 1. He doesn't show up until chapter 2. But in chapter 1... <clears throat> You have a guy named Elimelech. He has a wife by the name of Naomi. He has two sons, Malon and Chilion. <clears throat> Excuse me, they live in Bethlehem, but famine's broken out. And uh, Elimelech is pretty slick. He thinks he can outrun the adversity. Bad times are everywhere around him, so he's got the gold, the Krugerrands, he's got the offshore banking account, he's got the whole thing. He's going to move his family and get out from under the economic pressure, and he's going to go to Moab. Never should have gone to Moab. It's a godless place. It's a godless country. It's only 50 miles to the east of, uh, of Israel. But they were the sworn enemies of the Jews, uh, had horrific idols that they worshipped. It, it was a dark place. It, 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 it was not a place to raise a family. Nevertheless, he went just out of expediency, uh, 
had his plan that he would be there a short time. Interestingly enough, they weren't there a short time, they were there 10 years. That wasn't in the original plan. Uh, his original plan, he'd be there a short time, then he would come back, but he died there. And then his two sons, they married there, but then his two sons died. So suddenly, you have uh, Elimelech's wife, who is Naomi, and her two daughter-in-laws, and you have three women who are widows, and they are destitute, they are penniless, they are in utter despair, their lives are full of disappointment, it can't get any worse. If you ever read the great theologian Louis L'Amour, <clears throat> he writes some good stuff. Not Bible stuff, but just good stories. There's always a good guy, there's always a bad guy. There's always a, a lady in need. And uh, there's always a fight scene where the good guy is horrifically out-muscled and outsized by the bad guy. But the good guy always gets a second wind and he starts feeling good. And then the big guy, who hasn't been in many fights because nobody will challenge him, he gets worried for the first time he might actually lose. And he is going to lose. <clears throat> there are over 100 Louis L'Amour books that all basically have the same plot. But with a lot of variety, and they're, and they're good. But one of the, and there are certain lessons you learn from Louis L'Amour. You learn never to look into a fire. Well, that'll save your life. Because you're out in the range and you're, you got a camp, you know, you see you have a campfire. And, I mean, what, what's the natural thing? You want to just stare at the fire, stare at the flames. They're fascinating. But you see, if you stare at a fire and someone comes up behind you and you turn, you can't see them because you're blinded by the fire. So you don't look into a fire. You look to the side of the fire. Now, see, you may thank me for that later. <laughs> Here's the other thing you do. If you, got the, if you got the bad guys after you, and you're running for your life, you never go into a canyon you've never been into before because it might turn out to be a boxed canyon. You may thank me. <laughs> See, if it's a boxed canyon, you're toast, man. See, you're going into that canyon thinking, there's got to be a way out of here, and most canyons, there's a way out, but some canyons are boxed canyons. There's no way out. And you're going to have to go back out the way you came in, and they're going to be waiting for you, it's all over. What does that have to do with what we're studying? Really nothing that I can figure out. <laughs> Except that Elimelech thought he was smart enough, he was going to outrun the discipline of God. One of the principles we learned early on in this study is... <clears throat> is that it is wise to stay where you are and learn the lessons that God has for you. Now, if God is clearly leading you to make a change, then change. In an abundance of counselors, the Bible says there's victory. If, if, if uh, people you know and you trust and they know you, uh, your wife, you have some friends, you trust their judgment, and you're all praying about a situation, if God's leading you to make a change, interestingly enough, he'll often reveal it to everybody, and everyone will have a sense, yes, this is what God would have for you. But, but see, that's different than running. That's different than bolting. It's, it's different than trying to get out from under something that's just hard and difficult. That's what Elimelech did. He ran. He bolted. And it turned out horrifically for his wife and for the two daughter-in-laws. 
So truly, the story of chapter 1 is deep, deep disappointment. Then you get to chapter 2, and everything changes because Boaz comes into the picture. And as you know from the scripture, last verse of chapter 1, it was the beginning of barley season in the, in the springtime, and they were starting to harvest the barley. There was a law in Israel that they didn't, they didn't harvest the entire uh, field. They would leave the corners. Why would they leave the corners? For the alien, for the orphan, for the widow. That's how they stayed alive. So in order to stay alive, because Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, are penniless and on the verge of starvation, perhaps, she goes out to this field. And by chance, it's the field of Boaz. There is no chance. There is no luck. There is no accident. There are no accidents. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God led her to that field. Boaz shows up. Chapter 2 is all about their meeting in the field. And then what happens is, after a period of weeks, you have the barley harvest, then you have the wheat harvest. Then, in chapter 3, with the encouragement of her mother-in-law, Ruth lets him know that she is open, that, that her heart is open to him becoming her kinsman redeemer. Uh, she is open to letting him know that she is willing to marry him. And even, and, and it's not necessarily how we do it in our culture, but even in our culture, there are, there are signals that gals give off to let us know. There are signals they give off to let us know they're not interested, and we've all had those. Have we not? Devastating. I'm still in therapy over some of those. I'm sure you are too. The junior prom, I've never gotten over. But that's another issue. And I've got a counseling appointment at 8 in the morning to work it through. We've all had, gals have a way of letting you know when they're not interested, but they also have a way of letting you know when they are interested. Uh, you wouldn't be married unless she let you know at some point in that relationship that she indeed was open and she was interested. There were signals given off. That's what happened in chapter 3. Uh, but, but there's a problem because if you've been with us, I'm not going to explain the whole principle of the kinsman redeemer, but he was the closest relative. And back in, in the Old Testament, they had a whole different system than we have today. But family was very important. Extended family was very important. Land was given to tribes. Land was given to families. Land was to stay in tribes and in the families. If a man got in deep, deep debt, his kinsman redeemer, his, his close relative, could come and uh, buy it from him and pay his debt. If a woman was childless, her husband died, uh, a brother, it's the Leverite law, could marry her so that he could raise up a male heir for her, um, so that that young boy could become a man and take care of his mother and be a redeemer for her. There are all these different social laws that God put into place. So you get into chapter 3, he finds out, Boaz, that she wants him to be her kinsman redeemer, but there's a problem because there's a relative who is closer than she is. And so last week we looked at the process by which he goes and talks with the relative who is closer than he is, and the guy gives him the green light. I don't want to redeem the land. I don't want to marry her. It's yours. And so now that we're at that point that Paul Harvey would say, and now the rest of the story. Ruth chapter 4, 
Note, if you would, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, the mother-in-law, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name became, become famous in Israel. Interestingly enough, when she says, when the women say, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, not speaking of Boaz, Boaz was the kinsman Redeemer who married Ruth, and by marrying Ruth promises to take care of Ruth, but also commits himself to taking care of the mother-in-law, Naomi. So when they say you're blessed because the Lord has not left you without a Redeemer, they're not referring to Boaz, they're referring to the son of Boaz. You see, not only are we as men to be kinsmen redeemers, not only are we to be men who help those who are in need, not only are we to be men that, that model the truth of Christ, not, not only are we to be men, as, as uh, uh, Titus says, that the older men are to be sober, the, old, the older men are to be dignified. What does that mean? Well, it means that older men are to have their feet on the ground. Older men are to have gravitas. O older men are not to be silly. It, it doesn't mean you don't have fun. It, it doesn't mean you don't enjoy humor. Um... Nobody has a greater laugh than Chuck Swindoll. And I don't know anybody who laughs more than Chuck Swindoll. But the guy brings it, teaches the Word of God, serious, there's gravitas, but not a lack of uh, humor, but never silly. Greatest laugh in Western civilization. Um, people have heard Chuck laugh in restaurants and come up to him. They've never met him. They don't know what he looks like, but they recognize the laugh. So when, you, when we say uh, older men are to be sober, they're to be serious, it doesn't mean you don't enjoy humor. Uh, humor is a gift from God. But it means it's a man, it's a man who has his feet on the ground, it's a man who's serious about life, it's a man who has gravitas, uh, a, a man who can be trusted, a man who is not in it for himself. A man who is quick to help. He who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. So there are people around us who are in need. There are people God will bring across your path. And they're in need. Help them. Help them. Well, I've taken a real hit this year. Well, maybe you need to help somebody. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Given it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. A lot of times in an economy like this, we feel like we can't give. This is a time when we need to give because if you're serious and sober about your faith, you know that you can trust God to meet your needs no matter what the economy is. You see? Your hope is not in the Federal Reserve. Your hope is not in this group or in this group and this group. Your hope is in God, in Christ, your Redeemer. He's your Redeemer. So then you can help redeem others without fear. And it doesn't mean you're, you're unwise. It doesn't mean you're foolish. But it means that you are not afraid to risk where others would not risk because you know that he's your safety net. 
Am I making sense? See, we're all to be Boazes. But not only are we to be Boazes, as I read this text, see, Boaz had done all of that for Ruth, and he'd done all of that for Naomi. But this text here says, the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may his name become famous, may his name become famous in Israel. Boaz's name was already known in Israel. This isn't talking about Boaz, it's talking about the baby boy that was just born. See, it's our job as men. It's our job as fathers, not only to be a Boaz, but to raise up a Boaz for the next generation. That's our job. So what does that mean? It means we have to be connected. It means we have to work to be connected to our sons. That's what it means. Turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, the Italian prophet, Malachi. Malachi, or you may prefer Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. And you may know this, that if you're in Malachi 4, that's the end of the Old Testament. If you just turn the page over, once you're in Malachi 4, there's the Gospel according to Matthew. So Malachi is the end of the Old Testament. Malachi, uh, Matthew is the beginning of the New Testament. Now, I've got one page in my Bible separating those two books, but that one page represents 400 years. So 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So God didn't speak for 400 years before the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. If you were God and you weren't going to speak for 400 years, what would you say? I mean, there's a whole bunch of things you could say. Things of primary importance, things of incredible importance. You could talk about the coming Messiah. You could talk about the fact that uh, that, that the bond, that, that the barrier between Jew and Gentile would be broken. You could, you could talk about all kinds of things. But here's what he talks about. Last thing that is said in the Old Testament for 400 years before it's going to be silent, before God will, will be silent. Verse 5 of 4. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. And Luke 1.17 tells us that that was John the Baptist who fulfilled Elijah's rule. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great and terrible day of the Lord. Watch this. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will come, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. A nation is in trouble when fathers are separated from, their heart, from the hearts of their children. What, what God desires is that our hearts be knit together with the hearts of our children. Years ago, when I, when I was writing the book Point Man, I, I, I said the enemy has a twofold strategy. And it's a very simple strategy. What the enemy wants to do is he wants to alienate and eventually sever the relationship that you enjoy with your wife. I don't care if you've been married four weeks or four months or 44 years or 104 years. He never backs off on that. He wants to alienate you from your wife. He wants to sever the relationship with your wife. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. That's what Boaz did with Ruth. Cleave means to cling. It's harder today to cling to a wife than ever before because when troubles come up, you may want to work it through, but your wife may want to leave, and there's nothing today you can do to stop her from leaving. 
Now, 40 years ago, you could have stopped her because 40 years ago, our laws were written so that divorce was hard to get. But when the 60s came in and the moral earthquake came along, uh, we rewrote the laws to make divorce easy. Divorce should be hard. So now someone has observed it's easier to fire. No, 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 I got it wrong. That's how it should be. It should be easier to fire an employee than to divorce your spouse. But it's not. It's easier to divorce your spouse than to fire an employee. That's how screwed up we are. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife. So in other words, the, the two shall become one. That's God's plan. The two become one. You know what the enemy's plan is for every guy in this room who's married? He wants the two who have become one to become two again. So the enemy's strategy is to alienate and eventually sever the relationship that you enjoy with your wife. Here's the second strategy. He wants to alienate and eventually sever the relationship you enjoy with your children. When our kids are small, when our kids are little, they think we hung the moon. When our kids hit 12, 13, 14, they want us to go to the moon. Why is that? They're at a different phase of life. They're in adolescence. You say, what happened to my little girl? Well, she's turning into a little teenage girl. What happened to my little boy? He's, he's on his way to becoming a man. And now suddenly you're going to have friction. You're going to have difficulty. And every family has that stuff. You just got to work it through. And the job of a father, the job of a father, as you discipline them, as you love them, as you are strict, Dad, you're so strict. My, my, remember my kids, Dad, you're so strict. So that's right. I'll tell you something, Josh. When you're a dad, you're going to be a lot stricter than I ever thought about being. Because it's going to be a lot worse raising kids when you're a dad. You see. It's interesting. The older my kids get, the more conservative they get. Have you noticed that? Kids grow up and, you know, you teach them the Word of God, and then sometimes they veer off, and I'm not even sure anymore, you know, and they go through all kinds of struggles, and that's fine. It's just normal. It's part of life. But the older you get, you find there's wisdom here. As you go through the phases of life, what's important is we got to stay connected with their hearts. Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we hurt them. Sometimes we're too hard. Sometimes we're too harsh. And their hearts close to us. Some of us look back, and I, I can't believe I did that. I never should have done that. And you shouldn't have. But now you see it. Now's the time to do something about it. Now's the time to fix it. Now's the time to repair it. Now's the time to approach it. Well, they won't even talk to me. Well, then you've got to ask God to give you an opening, somehow, some way. I mean, but see, what, what the Lord wants here is he wants fathers and sons, their hearts to be together. He wants fathers and daughters, their hearts to be repaired. You see, and all of us have dads. At some point, we're going to have to do this with our kids. Because we all have blind spots. We don't mean to hurt them, but we do. And so what do you got to do? You got to go fix it. You got to go get it re repaired. See, I'm to be a Boaz, but my job is to raise up a Boaz. Yeah, am I to take care of those in need and those around me? Yeah, I am. But one day I die, I pass off the scene, so my family needs to produce another Boaz or two. You see, that's how it works. That's why she's referring to this baby boy as a redeemer, because that's his task as he grows up. Serious business being a father, isn't it? And you see what happens to a nation when fathers quit being fathers. 
You see what happens to a nation when fathers become self-centered and they're just out there trying to find themselves. Just remarkable, it's remarkable to me how self-deceptive we can be. I remember years ago talking to a guy who had taken up, he was probably, I don't know, late 40s, he'd taken up with some 26, 27-year-old chick. And, you know, church guy, man, you know, on the board, you know, involved in this and that, and just real involved. I remember having a conversation with this guy. You know, the, I mean, his, uh, abandoned his kids. His wife was humiliated. He, uh, I, I tell you, unbelievable. This guy knew scripture. As I was talking to him, he would, he would quote scripture to me. At one point he said to me, he said, you, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. This gal really understands me. I said, how long have you known her? Three weeks. I said, she doesn't understand you. What do you mean understand you? She doesn't understand you. She doesn't even know you. She doesn't even know you, man. If she knew you like your wife knew you, she'd have nothing to do with you. Wait till she gets to know you. So you, you think your greatest problem is your wife. Your greatest problem is you. And you know why this thing's not going to work out? What do you mean it's not going to work out? It's not going to work out. Why is it going to work out? Because you've got to take you with you. And you are your biggest problem. If you could, if you could go and not take you, you might, have a, you might have a shot. But see, you've got to take you. You're your biggest problem, I'm my biggest problem. But we have guys that get so self idolatrous. A lot of idols. Biggest idol is self. We worship self. We bow before self. We rationalize all kinds of things trying to fulfill self. And as you try to fulfill self, you say, so what's a kinsman redeemer? What's Boaz? Well, he's a model of Jesus. Well, that's just real simple. Uh, Jesus didn't do what was best for himself. He did what was best for me. Let's go on for the rest of the story. That's for the guy who's thinking about leaving his wife that's here tonight. And I don't have any word from the Lord that somebody's here. But with this many guys, I would imagine there's somebody that's, that's kicking it around. Because it's so hard and it's so difficult. Well, first of all, you said you'd be committed for better or worse, and it's worse. So what's the problem? Why don't you show your kids how a man operates when things get real bad? Why don't you show them that? Because one day it's going to get real bad for them. 
Why don't you be a Boaz for them? And this is always hard for some guys because there are some guys that, that left. That left. And you say, I never should have done it. Well, I'm on my second marriage. I'm on my third marriage, all right? Well, you make this one work. You do it right this time. You follow Christ here. Old things have passed away. Nothing you can do about that. All of us have old stuff. We wish we could go back and change, but we can't. So what do we do? Forgetting what lies behind, I press onward, Paul says. Paul held the coats of the men who murdered Stephen, and there was nothing he could do about it. You can shame yourself all you want. You can guilt yourself all you want. It won't change a thing. So get under the blood of Christ and receive his forgiveness and move on and do what's right. That's the gospel. We're all growing into becoming Boazes. We're all in process. Now watch this. May he, uh, uh, where am I? Ruth 4, 15. The women say, may he also be a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. You see, that, that's the future of this kid. The future of this baby boy, uh, the, the name um, Obed, if you look down at verse 17, uh, it, it means worshiper, or it means it means um, it means worshiper, or it means slave, um, servant. Uh, he this this baby is you see he's going to grow up to be a man. The whole point was that baby boys were to grow up to be men. What do men do? They take care of those in need. They take care of the aged. They, back then it wasn't government doing all this stuff. It wasn't Social Security, it wasn't Medicare, it wasn't... By the way, that stuff I hear is going away. So maybe we'll need more and more men to step up to the plate. You say, yeah, but that's the fact. How am I going to do it? I don't know how you're going to do it. That's where you trust God. Seems to me we're entering a time where more and more of us are going to have to step up to the plate for other family members, and in order to do it, we're just going to have to trust God. God's always forcing me into a place where I've got to trust Him. Interesting how that works, isn't it? Okay. This is, uh, this is quite a story. This is the rest of the story. So what happens? You, you know the story of what happened to Naomi, what happened to Ruth. Their whole lives were apart, and then God works providentially, God works miraculously. miraculously. You get to this point, Boaz, who is probably at least 20 years older than young Ruth, marries her, she conceives, she has a son. Now Naomi is blessed. This boy will grow up, even if Boaz dies, this young boy will grow up and be her redeemer, be her supporter, be her help. We, we all need a redeemer. We all need, a, rede we all need a, a, a kinsman redeemer in some way, shape, or form. Uh, th this, this, this is the rest of the story. I've said this many times, and I'm going to say it again. As I read the Bible, the Bible seems to me to be a series of, uh, uh, among the truth that's there, so much of the Bible is, is demonstrating to us that, that the Christian life is a, is a life where we walk by faith and, we, and not by sight. What happens is, is that God brings us to himself, he saves us from our sin. 
And, that's, and then we're spiritually born. You must be born again. So now I'm on a path. And I'm on this path of moving from uh, immaturity to maturity. I'm on this path of, of moving from being a child to becoming a spiritual man. So it is a path that involves growth. The only way that you grow is you grow through suffering, you go through hardship. How do I grow? How do I become a mature man? How do I become a Boaz? Uh, how is it that Boaz could be so quick to help and, and assist and be available and redeem and take risk? How was it that he could do that? He was a man who had learned to trust God. So the question is, how do you learn to trust God? By finding yourself in difficult situations where you're boxed in and there's no way out and you never saw it coming, but suddenly you're in a situation that has not turned out the way you thought, the way you planned, and what God does is, I think God leads us into box canyons. I look back over my life, and it seems to me that at times, you've been on planes, and you're looking out the window, and you've you know, been up there three, four hours. You finally land, and you're so glad you land. It takes another hour to get to the terminal, DFW. And you finally can see the terminal, and the guy starts turning in. And you see those guys get out there with those red pops up, you know? And they're going to bring that plane into the gate. Have you ever had God bring you into the gate? And you've prayed, and your wife has prayed, and you, Lord, lead me and direct my steps, and, and everything, every, all the red popsicles, come on, come on, come on, come on. And he gets you in there and does that thing, and, you know, whatever they do. I don't know what they do. But you're in the gate. All right, we're here. God's led us. And then the next thing you know, everything falls apart. Have you ever had that happen to you? Suddenly everything falls apart and you I thought God led me here. Oh, he did lead you here. Yeah, but I thought it was going to be this. It all it looked like this and this and this. Sure it did. Sure it did. Because if you had known how it was going to turn out, you never would have gone in. See, sometimes God takes you through a trial and, and, and you learn and you grow and you develop and then you think, I'm out of the trial, and, the next, and then and he goes, come on, let's go over here. So you come over there, and the next thing, oh, this looks good and looks great. And then the next thing you know, you're in another trial. Uh, I'm just trying to encourage you tonight. <laughs> but think about it for a minute. So Joseph was sold into slavery, right? He's put up on the auction block in Egypt, Potiphar buys him. But the Bible says there in Genesis 39 that the Lord was with Joseph. And he didn't want to be a slave, but he's there. But the Lord was with him. And suddenly, the favor of God is upon him. And um, uh, Potiphar uh, is impressed with him. And every time he turns around, Potiphar is promoting him. He starts down at the low end of the scale on this great estate, probably cleaning latrines. But, but even Potiphar, this uh, Egyptian reprobate, could see that the hand of the Lord is with him, and he was faithful in little, shall be faithful in much. So before you know it, he's promoted, he's promoted, he's promoted, he's promoted, and he's suddenly running this great estate. He can't believe his good fortune, how well things have turned out. God's been gracious, God's been kind. He learned a bunch of lessons, but, but now as he has received promotion, undoubtedly he has received some perks. He's been given a, a, an Egyptian express card. Uh, he's been given a... Um, a German-made chariot of, of some kind. Don't you think he had some perks? 
How wonderful was that? His life looked like it was over. And, and, and God's been gracious. And everything's good in Genesis 39 until verse 6. And it says that he was handsome in form and appearance. He was a young guy, mid to late 20s, worked out six days a week, three days weights, three days cardio. He was in shape. Oh, but Potiphar had this wife. We don't know her name. I like to call her Predator. <laughs> and she looked with him at desire, and she said, sleep with me. And Joseph said, sure. I'll go ahead and ask for forgiveness later. Is that what he said? No, he refused. He refused. And she got hacked off because she's just an Egyptian slut. Rich Egyptian chick slut. Nipped, tucked, Botoxed, siliconed. She's got it all. Better living through chemistry. Nobody turns her down. He turned her down. Repeatedly, he turned her down. She sets him up a little bit later in the chapter. He runs away. She holds his coat, cries rape. Next thing you know, where's Joseph? He's in jail. No Egyptian chariot. No German chariot. No Egyptian express card. He's in jail. Now see, he was in one bad situation, and then God was gracious, and then he found himself in another bad situation. Now, why, why, was, why was all that happening? Well, one day he was going to run a great nation. He knew nothing about this. He was going to run a great nation through crisis. How do you learn to run a great nation through crisis? By first learning to run a great estate. You see, he learned every lesson he could learn in the great estate. So now he's going to eventually run the jail, run the great institution. See, he was put in jail so that he could learn lessons that would equip him for the ultimate task that he knew nothing about. Lessons he didn't learn in the estate, but he would only learn her, here. You see, he went from one trial to the next trial. Now, was it always that way? No. But often the Christian life is, you know what the Christian life is? It, it seems to me so much of life, I look back over my life, God's been gracious, God's been good. God has, been so, has given me so much favor, it's overwhelming to me. But I also look back and I see, I see a pattern where God will, will lead me into a situation that looks pretty darn good and then it'll start to fall apart. And then suddenly I find myself facing things I never thought that I would be facing. And then suddenly it, get wor it gets worse than I imagined and suddenly I, I, I'm in a sweat and I've got a pain in my chest and I'm trying to figure this out because Things are collapsing, and the plans I had going in have all fallen apart, and you're just on a day-to-day -day survival, and you're trying to figure out how you're going to manage this, and you're trying to keep your heart from going into depression and despair, but it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and as far as you can see, there is absolutely no way out. You are in a boxed canyon. Oh, and then, at the right time, he delivers you. How many of you guys have ever had that happen to you? Let me see your hands. Okay. How many of you had it happen to you more than once? How many of you had you had it to you double digits? And then see, every time he delivers you, you know what it does? It builds spiritual muscle and increases your faith for the next thing you encounter.
That's how you build muscle. That's how you become a mature man. That's how you become a Boaz. Because you see, every time you're in a situation and he hems you in and there's no way out, like they were in in Ruth chapter 1, there was no way out for them in Ruth chapter 1. And what does he do? At the right time, he sends a Boaz. Jesus is our Boaz. And when it's happened to you once, it's happened to you twice, it's happened to you three times, it's happened to you four, five, six, seven, you start getting up nine, ten, eleven times, you start picking on it. You start picking up the lesson that, you know what, I'm in a tough, tough spot. But if he delivered me there, and 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 he delivered me there, why the heck wouldn't he deliver me here? I can trust him. Can I not? Why would he quit being good now? Why would he quit being gracious now? This is tougher than anything I've ever been through. But you see, he's a gracious God. He didn't give this to me 20 years ago because it would have crushed me. But because I built muscle through this, this, and this, and this, I should not be surprised, but the principle is the same. Am I going to trust him? The pressure is greater, but am I going to trust him? Yeah, that's the issue. It, we, we, we go from faith to faith, the Bible says. You say, I want my best life now. Mm -mm. <laughs> Your best life is in heaven. But you can have a great life now as you trust Him. Jesus, I am resting, resting. You know that old hymn? Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what Thou art. I am finding out the greatness of Thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me to gaze upon thee. That's old King James. Thou hast bid me to gaze upon thee, and thy beauty, the beauty of thy character, fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. Jesus, I am resting, resting. I am resting where I am, where I don't want to be, because I know who you are. Do I want to be here? No. Is there a way out? No. Is the pressure great? Yes. Can I take it another minute? No, but your grace is sufficient. If the pressure gets worse, your strength gets better. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know how long I'm going to be in here, but I trust in you. That's the Christian life. Uh, so why does he keep doing this to us? Go over to James 1. I want to submit to you, I want to submit to you that Boaz, at this point in his life, up until this point in his life, and we don't have all the story. We just have what's recorded here. I want to tell you something. Boaz had been through some stuff. He wouldn't have been the kind of man that he was without going through some trials and some hardship. That's just how it works. James chapter 1. And see, guys, after a while, we should understand that things don't happen to us by chance. Things don't happen to us just randomly. Oh, man, it's just the look of the draw. Man, I got dealt a bad hand. No, you didn't. He's sovereign in your life. He's overseeing your life. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 1 of James. Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter... No, no, that's what... It, it, it says, consider it joy, consider all joy, my brother, if you encounter various trials. Does your Bible say if or does your Bible say when? Your Bible says when because trials are certain. Once again, I'm here to encourage you tonight. Have you had trials? Oh, yes. Well, guess what? You got more on the way. 
Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, now stop and think about this. Some of you guys are in the middle of an incredible trial. It wears you down. It breaks you down. You start to lose heart if you're not careful. Well, if you start getting James 1, you won't lose heart. You'll gain courage. Because God is sovereign over this trial that you're in. God has placed you in this trial. Consider it all joy. It doesn't say feel it is joy. Because most trials, you don't, you don't feel joy. You want out of it. You want to get out of it as quick as you can. Watch this. Consider it. Or could we say this? Count it as joy. Could we say this? Think it as joy. See, this is something you do with your mind. Consider it, think it, count it as joy when you encounter various trials. Watch this. Knowing. Knowing what? Knowing that the testing of my faith. Are you in a trial right now? You want to know what's going on? Your faith is being tested. That's what's going on. Well, I don't know where God is. He's testing your faith. That's where he is. He's testing your faith. He's watching you. He wants to mature you. He wants you to graduate from seventh grade and go to eighth grade. That's what this is all about. You're just, you're just taking the SAT exam. That's, that's all it is. Consider it joy. Count it as joy. Think it as joy when you encounter various trials, the one you're in right now. Knowing that the testing of your faith, watch this, produces what? Happiness. Is that what it says? No. Produces endurance. Endurance? Why would I need endurance? Because you're going to go through more trials. This is why I'm not on television. <laughs> not that I'd want to be on television. People don't want to listen to this stuff. See, that prosperity stuff, they want to listen to. You know, you know the prosperity gospel? You're always healthy. You're always rich. You never have prostate issues. <laughs> That's all in the prosperity gospel. I mean, your life's perfect, man. That's a false gospel. It's not in the Word of God. Count it joy when you encounter various trials. Knowing. Knowing. Knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces endurance. Why would I need endurance? Because you're going to go through more trials. Because God's going to make you even stronger. Now, is God gracious in the midst of the trial? Is God good? Yeah. Ecclesiastes 7. Consider the work of God. In the day of prosperity, be happy. Does God prosper us? Is God, God good to us? Has God given us health? Has God given us funds? Can we? God's been so good to us, hasn't he? Dad, gum has he been good to us. What a gracious God he is. Consider the work of God. In the day of prosperity, be happy. And he prospers. And you enjoy, enjoy it. Enjoy what he's given you. Just be thankful for it. Just know it comes from him. I was talking to a young guy this week. And, and he had something really neat happen to him, and he was kind of overwhelmed because it shouldn't have happened to him. It was just a, he, he was just kind of blown away by it, and it was an opportunity, it was a position of, of learning a, a craft, and, it's, and they were going to pay him, and normally they don't pay somebody in that position. They're rookies, and you pay your dues. They don't pay you, you pay them, but these guys are paying him, and they're paying him, more than 
Not only are they paying him when the other guys aren't getting paid, they're paying him something that's somewhat insane. And he's telling me about this. And he said, this just happened today. I've got to tell somebody about it. I said, isn't that amazing? He's a great guy. Loves the Lord. He's following the Lord. And he said, you know, what's, you know what's really weird? He said, I'm just overwhelmed. And I said, yeah, I guess so. I said, hey, man, it's just a gift. It's just grace. It's just pure grace. He goes, yeah. He said, you know what's weird? I mean, I kind of got over the initial shock of it about two hours ago. And, I, and all of a sudden, I had this thought, I must really be something special if you're willing to do that for me. And I know that's wrong. I said, well, yeah, it is wrong. He said, how do you fight that off? Just know this, that even if you are, I mean, there's a reason they're paying you and not paying the other guys. But whatever it is, whatever it is that's making them want you and want to pay you, whatever it is, it's a gift from God. He gave you that gift. So if that thought comes into your mind, man, I must be really something because, and you know, Lord, the reason they want me is because you gave it to me. Just keep going back to him and thanking him. That's how you fight that stuff off. Just know that whatever you've been given is a gift. Oh, can I do this better than the guys? It's a gift. Can you run faster than anybody else? It's a gift that you're not in a wheelchair. Are you, are you unbelievably quick at math? It's a gift. It's just a gift. Just know it. But, but, but see, here's the deal. If we're going to be Boazes, we've got to keep growing. And if you're going to continue to grow, he's going to continue to put you in situations where you're going to have to trust. And you had this back here. Man, I had to trust him there, and I didn't see any way out. He made a way out. And then this came along in my life. You look back over your life, and you see this stuff. And you know what? I didn't see any way. I didn't know. And then you know what? Look what he did. He got, look what he did for me. Yeah. And then this came along. You never saw this one coming. And, see, and every time, it causes you to trust him a little bit more. Because the issue is, see, it's always trust. I'm going to trust him. Um, that's what this is all about. Where you are right now, it's an issue of trusting me. That's the issue. So I think God wants to turn us into Boazes, into kinsmen redeemers. Now, I'm looking at that screen. I, I was really excited about that screen and that clock when it first, when they first brought it out. And, I'm going to bring an AK-47 in here. And just, I'm going to destroy that sucker. All right, now here's the temptation. Here's our temptation, guys. Our temptation is that as men and as leaders, that we don't develop in the kinsman redeemers. But that we let our natures take over and we become kinsman deceivers. As a male, you can be a redeemer or you can be a deceiver. But you can't be both at the same time. Uh, in Jeremiah's book, he's, he's talking about where we are right now in our country and the breakdown, and we know all about this stuff. He's talking about, uh, he has a chapter called from, from Crisis to Consolidation, How Everything's Being Centralized, and you know what I'm talking about. The banks and everything. 
He says, the, I'm just picking up. This statistic reflects, he's got a bunch of statistics, what's happening with growth and retirement income. And Okay. This statistic reflects the third consecutive year in which retirement savings did not grow. We as a nation are relying increasingly on the government for our income, financial security, rescue from imprudent business decisions, and now to provide health care. Each, with each of these dependencies, we are giving up basic freedoms and risk selling ourselves to unscrupulous pharaohs. That was exactly the point. Can I read a page to you? I'm going to read a page and a half to you. Okay? That was exactly the point that Machiavelli made in his book, The Prince. Written in Italian in 1513, Machiavelli gives advice to would-be leaders. That's you and me. It's the contrary advice to the Word of God. It's how not to be a Boaz. Not least among his counsel is this. Learn to use the expediency of deception. Machiavelli wrote that historically the most successful leaders have been those who had little use for honesty. They learned to speak in ways that deceive those who have relied on their word. A wise leader should not even consider keeping his promises when doing so would not be in his own best interest. Why? He says, if men were entirely good, this precept would not hold. But because men are bad and will not keep faith with you, you too are not bound to observe it with them. What? It's a complete and total absence of character. In other words, since the people are dishonest, Jeremiah writes, their leader might as well be dishonest too. As evidence, he referred to the number of treaties subsequently voided by leaders who changed their minds. Machiavelli went on to warn, but it is necessary to know well how to disguise this characteristic and to be a great pretender and dissembler. And men are so simple and so subject to present necessities that he who seeks to deceive will always find someone who will allow himself to be deceived. Therefore, according to Machiavelli, it is not necessary for a leader to actually be good. He must only give the impression of being good. That he is merciful, faithful, humane, religious, upright, in such a way that provides the front for him to act in just the opposite way. C.S. Lewis, who would have never endorsed Machiavelli's model of leadership, agreed with him concerning the nature of men. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people are only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. There's great wisdom. There's one master, and there's one Lord. You know why we suffer? So that we can grow to become kinsmen redeemers because our natural tendency is to be kinsmen deceivers. So we suffer. And through the suffering we grow. And through the suffering the flesh drops off. And through the suffering we learn to trust in him instead of ourselves. Paul said, when I am weak, then I am. You know what God does? God takes strong men, he breaks them down, crushes them, and then he rebuilds them. That's what God does. Uh, Jim Collins wrote a phenomenal business book called From Good to Great. As best I can tell, Collins is not a follower of Christ. 
One of the remarkable things about the book, however, is he studied excellent companies. These excellent companies that he studied and that he wrote about in his book all followed Christian principles. He's come up with a, with a smaller book called How the Mighty Fall. How, how companies that were once great, how it is that they fall, and they go through five stages. The first stage is hubris born of success. Hubris. He says, when the rhetoric of success, this could be a business, it could be a nation, it could be an individual. When the rhetoric of success replaces penetrating understanding and insight, decline will be very likely to follow. Luck and chance play a role in many successful outcomes, and those who fail to acknowledge the role, he's calling it luck, may have played in their success, thereby overestimate their own merit and capabilities, and they succumb to hubris. Hubris is ego out of control. Uh, after hubris, you go to the next stage, which is the undisciplined pursuit of more. You always want more. You always want more. You always want more. In other words, you overreach. He says overreaching better captures how it is that the mighty fall. Then number three is the denial of risk and peril. We're too big to fail. We're too important to fail. I'm too gifted to fail. When someone denies the risk and the peril that is potential, and they deny the consequences of those risks, they're headed straight for stage four, which is grasping for salvation, which is trying to do something unique, trying to do something revolutionary, trying to do something that will shake people up just to shake them up. Hopefully, it will salvage your situation, which goes to number five, capitulation to irrelevance. You become irrelevant because you don't even know why you exist anymore. I want to give you just as I'm done, and I'm done. I see those four magic zeros back there. I'll tell you something. I love this guy, Boaz, and I want to be more like him. So I put this together with Boaz, and I put this together with what Jeremiah was talking about. You see, I want to be a kinsman redeemer in my sphere and not a kinsman deceiver. So I've come up with five things for me. Here's number one. Pursue humility instead of hubris. The passage would be Philippians 2 that talked about Jesus. Although he existed as God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on. So he laid aside his privileges, came to earth. Why did he come to earth? To do what was best for him? He came to earth to do what was best for me and for you. It wasn't about him, it was about us. He came to redeem us. Jesus is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That's humility. And then in the same passage it says, have this same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. That's humility. You prefer others over yourself. To be a kinsman redeemer in your family. It's not that you, the Bible says, don't merely look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. It doesn't mean you don't take care of your interest, but it just means you're not self-absorbed. You're also looking at the interests of others, the interests of your wife. What about your kids? What do your kids need? Not what do they want, what do they need? Somebody in your community, somebody, what, 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 what do they need? Someone needs to, re, to help them. Someone needs to be a Boaz for them. That's going to take humility. Secondly, 
Don't desire more. Be content with what you have. Proverbs 30, verses 7 and 8. Agur prayed this. He said, two things I would ask of you. Keep lies and deception far from me. And then secondly, give me neither poverty nor riches. Why would he pray that? Give me neither. We'll pray, give me, don't give me poverty. We'll all pray that. We have no sweat with that. But we kind of stumble at the second part. Don't give me riches. Why do we stumble at that? Why, why was he not afraid to pray that prayer? He was a contemporary of a guy named Solomon. He hung out with Solomon. He knew Solomon. And he watched riches destroy him. Lord, don't give me poverty and don't give me riches. Just kind of keep me in the middle. Just kind of, just take care of my needs. It was great wisdom. Be content with what you have. As a nation, we're about to experience that. Once again, I'm just here to encourage you. Number three, instead of denying risk and peril, guard your heart. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, let him who stands take heed lest he So you've done well? Why have you done well? Well, I worked hard. Where'd you get the energy to work hard? You don't have chronic fatigue syndrome. Some guys do. They can't get out of bed. Not that they're sluggers. They just can't get out of bed. Well, I don't have chronic fatigue syndrome. No, you don't. It's a gift from God that you don't. So don't get all swelled up like a toad that you've got a lot of energy. That's a gift from God. Am I making sense? Whatever you got, he gave it to you. Just give him the glory and give him the credit. Number four, stay on the ancient paths, not the latest trends. Just read Job twenty-two fifteen. There's wisdom in staying on the ancient path. Want to know what the ancient path is? There is a God. He sent his son. His name is Jesus. He gives grace to the humble, and he's opposed to the proud. So keep me humble. Keep me humble. Don't let me get proud. Keep me humble. If I need to get knocked down a peg, knock me down a peg. And God's so gracious when he knocks it down. When he knocks us down, it's for our good. Hebrews 12. Talks about the discipline of God. If you've never been disciplined by God, you're probably not a son of God. For every son of God has been disciplined by God. But to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And here's the fifth thing I've written down for me. Just keep running to Christ. Just keep running to him. We fail, we fall short, we get proud. We, just keep running to Christ. Don't run away from him, run to him. Because he's the one who will grow me into the man he wants me to be. I screwed up here. Well, join the club. We've all screwed up. But I'll quote John Newton for the hundredth time this semester. I am a great sinner. Jesus is a great Savior. So keep running to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this guy, Boaz. Thank you for the kind of man that he was. Thank you for the kind of God you are for us.
You redeem us. You take care of us. You provide for us. You sustain us. You make a way. You have proven yourself over and over and over again to us. The guys that are discouraged tonight, encourage them. The guys that are hurting, I pray that you would answer them quickly because they're in distress. Let them know that you're with them. Do something to lift their hearts and lift their spirits. And then, Lord, may we be quick to serve. You didn't come to be served. You didn't come to be served. You came to serve. Now, may we be like you. We get so caught up with what we're missing and what we're lacking, but there's someone around. You'll bring someone around us this week who's hurting and in worse shape than we are. Help us to be quick to look for a way to serve them. Use us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.